Matthew's Gospel was written about 80 AD, the church had become just marvelously diverse, perhaps even absurdly diverse. You had Jewish folks in the church, you had Gentile folks in the church, and those two religious traditions and cultural uh, points of view could not have been any different one from another. And it was creating conflict because community and communal convictions always create conflict. Let's let that sit in, settle in prayerfully. Because that's where we are right now. The communal convictions, whatever point of view you and I may have about our current situation has created a conflict. And we are seeking, by the light of God's word and the witness of the Holy Spirit, to find our way back to Christ and back to each other so that this body, this community can be healed. That's why you and I are here. That's why some of our friends are not here. Because it's too painful. And they are deselecting for reasons that probably are valid. In preparation for this sermon, I was trying to think of the very first conflict I encountered as a human. I believe I was six years old. I'm sure I created conflict before then. But I was six years old. It was in Mrs. Kingry's first grade class. And I sat in front of Wendy. And Wendy would poke me and tap me on the shoulder and get me in trouble and would want to talk. And far be it from me not to accommodate somebody who wants to talk. And so I would engage Wendy in conversation, and that was against the rule because Miss Kingry was trying to teach us, and, you know, children have to be quiet. Uh, one of the things that's curious to me is why quietness is the only way to learn. I don't think that's true. I think sometimes noise is the way to learn, and I think sometimes not stillness, but activity is the way to learn. But anyway, in 1963 in the Deep South, it was quietness and stillness, Right? And so just about the time when I turned around to engage Wendy Holston in some uh, extracurricular conversation, Mrs. Kingry looks up and she says, Charlie, go stand in the corner until you are ready to cooperate with the class. And I guess she had taught us the word cooperate. And I marched over to the corner and I faced the class because that way at least I could see, you know. No, she, no, no, that didn't work for Miss Kingry. You turn around, put your nose in the corner, and when you're ready, you can rejoin us. We'll get back to that in just a moment. 
There's conflict in Matthew's congregation. We're not told what the conflict is. We don't know what it is. It could be what Paul is addressing to the Romans. Paul is writing this letter to the Romans uh, some decade or two, probably two decades before Matthew's gospel. And the conflict is this clash of cultures that we have between the Jewish tradition with all its dietary laws and the Gentile tradition. Gentile folks can just eat anything. They don't have any dietary laws. And Paul is addressing himself to that. It could be that. It could be something having to do with children because a few verses earlier, we didn't have time to read it. Uh, Jim read the scripture so beautifully. You see where Jesus says, uh, if you cause one of these children to stumble, and he uses a great hyperbole, it would be better for you that a millstone be hung around your neck and cast into the sea. You have to become like one of these children. We have to become like these children that we bring to the altar in such a prominent way, week after week, worship after worship, Sunday after Sunday. They're the most important people in the life of this church. That wasn't the case in the culture at large. Children were property in the Greco-Roman culture, but not in this organization, not in this organization called the Ecclesia, the church. You are called out of the culture into a brand new community, a beloved community, a new organization. It may have been that. It may have been one of the, one of the disciples wanting to be first in the kingdom. They asked Jesus, who will be first? Who will be first in line when we come into the kingdom? Remember that? Who will be greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus says, unless you, be, yeah, I'll tell you who's great in the kingdom, in this topsy-turvy, counterintuitive world of God, that little kid's great. You become like that little kid. We don't know what the conflict is. But we know the community has created some conflict because Jesus gives us a fourfold stage about how to resolve it and the power of forgiveness. And first he says, go discreetly and quietly and trust the integrity of your interpersonal relationship. Go to the individual who has offended you, who has sinned against you. One translation, by the way, says member of the church. I like the newer translations and the new revised standard version, which has been updated. It says, if a brother or a sister offends you, because Jesus is assuming it is only someone that close to you who can really get under your skin. That's what we have here. People that we love and that we've loved a long time who don't see the situation like I see it. And that hurts because love hurts and it's a burden. And it requires mature people to do. And we are coming more and more and more into a mature faith. I've been thinking. Maturity was a word that I learned basically from this congregation 35 years ago. It was used by Hardy Clemens and some of my predecessors. It was used frequently. Maturity, mature, a mature faith. It means to grow up. It means to leave the stage you're in now and assume a higher stage, a more, a, a, a fuller stage, a deeper stage of development. That's what it means, a mature faith. 
And so Jesus gives us this fourfold path. And he, and he says first, go to the individual who has offended you. And have this one-on-one -on -one conversation. That doesn't mean necessarily that the conflict is going to be resolved. And so he gives us another chance at, at fulfilling this brokenness, at mending it, at healing it. He says, you might need to take somebody else with you one or two other people and see if the light will come on then. Maybe the light will shine then because I'm so defensive and I'm so self-protective. This is my flesh. This is my nature. Then I want to guard myself against you who are coming to me saying, Charlie, will you have the moral imagination to look at this complex situation in a little bit newer way? Let's turn the prism. Let's have an angle, a perspective that you're not aware of yet. And we need a little spiritual colloquy, what John Wesley called a colloquy, to make that happen. What we call today an accountability group. That's what we call it today. We need an accountability circle because I'm blind. I like my own virtues, but I, you know, and I want you to know about my virtues, but I'm going to conceal my vices and I'm going to defend myself against your shining the light on all the ways that I'm undone. It's the egocentric predicament, y'all. We are defensive. We are self-protective and we resist the truth-telling. So, if that doesn't work, Jesus says, bring the individual before the entire church, the whole church. Bring, the, bring that offending party. And that meant about a dozen or 15 people because the churches of Matthew's congregation were that small. And let's have sort of a living room meeting. And then if the relationship is not restored and the sweet communion is not put back together again, there is one more stage because you're too important for us to just say, get out of here and don't let the door hit you on the butt. There's one more stage. Just go over in the corner for a little while. Treat that person as a Gentile or a tax collector, which meant they had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. They could not come into the sanctuary. Matthew assumes we know that. I'm sharing a little bit of biblical data with you because it's not in our common perspective and parlance. It doesn't mean that those people were kicked out. Think about the role that tax collectors and Gentiles played in the teaching of Jesus. They were pretty important. Jesus goes and eats with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, much to the chagrin of all the power elite in the city, changes Zacchaeus' life. And Jesus is always in her. He told the Syrophoenician woman who touched the hem of his garment, you have more faith than all of Israel. 
And the court of the Gentiles was the place where the Gentiles and the tax collectors had to go. They couldn't come in to the sanctuary because they were not Jews. But here's what happened. The Jewish folks had to walk right past them, smile at them, maybe shake their hand, maybe tap them on the shoulder before they came into the sanctuary and did the same thing on their way out. Charlie, why don't you go in the great hall, go over there in the corner and employ some self-reflection because we believe in you and we believe you can do it. We believe you can come into collaboration and cooperation with the body of Christ all over again. Y'all, I'm going to tell you something. The church is the diverse organization in the world. Every other organization has some kind of Oh, what, what do they call it, Tim? We learned it in seminary. Some kind of homo, homo, homogenous principle. You go get with people who are homogenous with you. You remember that, Tim, the church growth? That's a bunch of baloney. That was a lie I knew it then. I definitely know it now. No, here's what the church looks like. It's brown people, it's white people, it's black people, it's gay people, it's straight people, it's female people, it's male people, it's poor people, it's middle class people, it's rich people, it's Democrat people, it's Republican people, it's seeker people, it's dedicated Christ follower people, it's a church that has a center but does not have a circumference. And that is going to be a community that is a stew. And it takes time for all those ingredients to bind together. But we need every single ingredient. And that is the moral and communal imagination of Jesus that we're hearing today. Peter says, we didn't have time to read it. How many times do I have to do this, Jesus? Seven times? And Jesus smiles and says, as many times as it takes. That's how long. You can't lop Charlie off. I know he gets under your skin. I know he steps on your last nerve. But he's a part of you now. And you cannot let him go. I've created a lot of damage in the church. I've said that in prior sermons and I need to unpack that a little bit because it's the right time for me to unpack it. And I don't mean to be too self-deprecating and I want you to see yourself in my testimony too because you have too. But preachers have an inordinate amount of influence over a community. It's a dangerous job. Every time I open my mouth, particularly me, I injure somebody. Every time. Words are powerful things. Probably including right now, I should say. And I've done that kind of, created that kind of conflict, done that kind of damage to the church. And I'll, I'll just remind you that when I left here 22 years ago, that was a morally ambiguous thing for a senior minister to do who had just relocated a church and I left you in a ton of debt. And that was wrong. Did I feel God leading me to San Antonio? Yes. 
I can't reconcile those two things. I don't know enough to reconcile those two things. All I can do is to confess to you that moral ambiguity and moral violation. I had a key load-bearing member of this church come up to me last week, tears in her eyes, to say, I have been mad at you for 22 years. <laughs> and I'm going to let go of that anger right here, right now. And I go down to San Antonio. I created a ton of conflict down there. I must belabor this a tad so that you'll get the point. I followed a minister who had been there for 42 years. He was a fine minister, a powerful preacher of the gospel. He did a great, great job. In that day, the minister was something like a Baptist pope. And he was assumed that. He was a World War II veteran. He kind of assumed that sage on the stage kind of presence. And there were paintings of him and photographs of him. There was a bust of him in the great hall of the church. What do you think I did? I set about to bust down every single one of those icons. Why? Because I'm just as egotistical as he was. What did that do? It created a big old batch of conflict. Instead of seeing what Christ has done for me in, in dying for my sins and rising again in victory and triumph over all the forces of death in me and being hum, hum, humbled by that, I wanted to be large and in charge. And so fast forward about five years. And the conflict grew and grew and grew. And it became more than I could manage. I read a book by a pastor in New York City named Jim Cimbala. It was called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Maybe some of you have read that book. Jim was pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And I was intrigued by that congregation, an Anglo minister. Not a really great preacher, I'll say. But he had a thriving church of brown people and black people and white people all together. It was predominantly people of color, about 65 or 70% in the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And it was a congregation that was sort of, sort of predicated on the ministry of music, Tim, really more than the preaching and teaching ministry. They had Broadway folks in the choir and musicians and so forth. But it was a charismatic church, very different from my Baptist theology. But Jim and I became friends and we had a couple of days of consultation with each other. And then he had a Thursday night prayer meeting and people would flock into that sanctuary for the Thursday evening prayer meeting. And Jim gave a simple Bible lesson. I don't remember it really. I don't, I don't remember being particularly touched by the sermon, but the Holy Spirit moved me that evening. I was seated in the top balcony and I was driven by the Holy Spirit to the altar to kneel and pray. My congregation in San Antonio was a big old mess and I had created it. And then Jim tapped me on the shoulder 
And he said, Pastor, there's somebody here who needs to talk to you. And I turned around and a woman flung her arms around me and sobbed on my shoulder. And she pulled back and she said, I had no idea who she was. She said, I am a member of your church in San Antonio. This is New York City. I am a member of your church in San Antonio. And I'm so angry at you, I cannot see straight. But I see you here in contrition. Weeping at the altar of God. And I was drawn to come down here and hug you and tell you that I forgive you and I love you. This is what the Holy Spirit is going to do in the life of this church. With every single person. I was told this past weekend that two church members went out to eat it several weeks ago. They heard people at the next table, strangers to them, not members of this church, say, have you heard what Second Baptist Church has done? They called Charlie Johnson back. Why would they do that? <laughs> so here I am. Here I am. You're stuck with me. I ain't going to stand in that corner anymore. I don't want to be in the court of the Gentiles. I want to come in right in the middle of you. You're so irres irresistible and so beautiful. And I'm just going to say I don't want it to be any kind of prideful thing. Confess it right here. Leave it at the altar of God if it's pride within you. But this city needs you. And this state needs you. And this world needs you. Needs you strong. And whole. And restored. And mended. So you've got an individual you need to see. And you've got a colloquy you need to form. And you've got a congregation to heal. We've got our marching orders. We know what to do. Let's get busy. The invitation of Christ is extended to us. I'm always going to speak these words of invitation because they are strong and true. Invitation is the strongest word in our vocabulary. And whosoever will may come. We're about to sing a hymn of discipleship. It's our tradition in the life of this church. To close our service that way. And to invite you to come and stand before. Right slap in the middle of the sanctuary. These dear people. And say I choose you. And let them say I choose you. We choose you. If today you would confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, your long-awaited one, would you come? Allow me to pray.
pray with you, present you to this body of Christ. If you are a Christian follower from this tradition, the Baptist tradition, or some other Christian tradition, it matters not to this congregation. The only thing that matters, we're not going to ask you to recite the Baptist faith and message. We're not going to ask you what your politics are. We're not going to ask you to show your tax return. We're not going to ask you to pay any dues. We're going to say, do you follow Jesus? Do you follow Jesus to this place? You say, yes, you are in our body. And God knows we need you now more than ever. This is the invitation of Christ to us. Let us respond as we stand and sing.